Grace, mercy, peace be yours from God our Father, from Jesus our Savior, from God the Holy Spirit, both now and into eternity. Amen. Dear fellow Christians, maybe you've heard the expression, you probably have, that forms the title for the sermon this morning, posed as a question, yours to lose, or some variation of that, theirs to lose. I've heard it used, for example, for a football team that's got a commanding lead going into the fourth quarter, and the announcer, the announcer will say, this game is theirs to lose, and it puzzles me because... For one thing, I don't understand it. Not really. Why would you say something like that? Why would you say something so pessimistic when a team is ahead? And that's usually when it's used. It's theirs to lose. Why wouldn't you say something positive like, wow, they're ahead. This game is really theirs to win now. But they don't. So what exactly is the psychology of that term? What's meant, what's implied? The term itself seems to be a window into the human heart, the natural pessimism that most of us tend to share. We have this idea that success is just a foreboding of imminent failure. Now, ask yourself, have you ever thought along those lines? You look at how much, how greatly you've been blessed and how good your life is, how, how wonderful God has made your existence. And then that's followed by, so something bad is going to happen really soon. And something probably really bad because I've got it really good. Something that seems to be hardwired into us something in our core. Good portends bad. Wealth comes just ahead of poverty. Success is spoiled by failure, and happiness comes just before great sorrow. I'm sure guilt plays a role here, as it plays a role in a lot of things in our lives. Because you and I recognize, citizens in this country even recognize how good they have it, and yet the vast majority understand, or at least some understand, how little they really deserve, and they feel guilty about it. And then they naturally take that next step to the wrong of their success and joy and happiness is soon going to be corrected by losing all the good things that they had, because that's what I deserve after all. Now this is this would be one thing in in if it were just the secular, it's like, yeah, okay, we'll work on it. But it creeps into the spiritual. And you and I recognize that we are on the path to salvation. Is it ours to lose? Is that the way we should look at it? As though we should be not just guarded, but somewhat pessimistic. And again, that guilt plays a role, doesn't it? The guilt works its way in because we recognize that we don't deserve what we've been given. We don't certainly deserve God's undeserved love, and we don't deserve heaven. 
So should we look forward with that certain pessimistic outlook, that certain sense of foreboding? Yes, God has placed our feet on the one path, that narrow path to heaven, but it's ours to lose. We ask ourselves, am I up to keeping myself in the faith? Am I up to continuing on this path until the Lord calls me home? Am I deserving of that? And the answer, of course, we know to the second question is no. No one is deserving of that. But the answer to the first is also no, I'm not up to it. And that's the only place that pessimism would be appropriate if you had to look to yourself to preserve you in this faith. Then you should be pessimistic. But that, that question, is it ours to lose, though technically true, and we'll look at that, really shouldn't cloud our view of the future, not unless our view, our focus is misdirected. If we're looking at ourselves, our own goodness, our own worthiness, our own ability, rather than to Jesus, our Savior. Our text gets into this whole subject this morning, but in a, in a rather subtle way than perhaps first meets the eye. The text that will form the basis of our study is found in Luke chapter 14, beginning with verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and him, of course, is Jesus. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children, and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. These are God's words. In great awe and humility, we acknowledge the divine authorship of these words, and we seek to sit attentively at the feet of our God and learn from him. To that end, we pray, sanctify us by your truth, O Lord. Your word is truth. Amen. Did you find yourself discouraged by that text? 
How could you not? Anybody here relish the thought of hating your loved ones? Not what Jesus just said? Anyone here keen on the idea of giving everything that you have away? Of not having or doing anything pleasurable in this world, just push it all away and actually hate your spouse, your parents, children, friends? Does that appeal to you? So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. The sad picture flashed in my mind of the rich young man. You remember the parable? Near the end of that account, the young man said to Jesus, All these commandments I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, Go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful. He went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Is that you? Is that me? If we examine our hearts, didn't our text sound like Jesus was saying just that? And if you aren't ready and willing to give up everything in this life and to hate those closest to you, you can't be a disciple. Who then can be saved? Now some have assuaged their guilt, numbed their guilt here by acknowledging that Scripture sometimes uses the word hate in the sense of love less. That's verified in other places. Jesus said in Matthew 10, whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So is that what we do? Is that how we, again, numb that guilt that we have and get by this section of God's word, these words from our Savior? Okay, so we're, we're supposed to love God above all things. I think, we're, I think I'm okay. I mean, I'm not doing it perfectly, but I get that, and I think I can do that or... If this is, in fact, what Jesus is telling us here, then we probably need to rethink whether or not we need Jesus. Because what he's talking about here is the first table of the law. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And if we're doing okay on that, then do we really need Jesus at all? Because that's the hardest table of the law. Obviously, such a thing is not possible. A general rule is that if you find yourself comfortable with the law, you're not reading the law accurately, you're not understanding it rightly, you're not applying it as God wants you to. 
you are being grossly dishonest with yourself. The law always condemns. The fact is, Christians routinely make the same mistake in understanding the Sermon on the Mount as they do here. They understand it to be Jesus telling them what they need to do to really be his disciples. If you really want to be a a Christian, then this is what you'll do. Same with the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, Jesus just gave us a bunch more laws and they're really difficult. My righteousness needs to exceed that of the Pharisees who are outwardly perfect. And I am not just supposed to not commit adultery. I can't even have a lustful look or I'll be condemned. And murder, it's not just murder, it's hatred or even calling your brother a name. And the whole point was, if you are understanding the law correctly, you're in great despair. You are absolutely beginning then to understand that you cannot do what it demands. The setting's important here, by the way. Jesus was being followed still at this time by great crowds. We heard that in the beginning of our text. And these great crowds were following him, many of them, most of them, for their own reason. They wanted to get in on the ground floor of this new leader, this guy who was feeding them, healing them. Miraculous powers. Sky's the limit. There was nothing this guy couldn't do for them. We might even vote for that kind of guy in our society. Although... So he was not only disabusing the masses of what it meant to follow him, he was also telling us something. So we need to dig deeper into this text to find out what exactly our God is conveying. God the Holy Spirit causing them to be, these words to be recorded. What's he telling us? How do we know that he wasn't telling us how to be real, true Christians? How do we know that that to hate our loved ones that Jesus didn't here mean hate the way the world thinks of hate instead of to love less. How do we know that any other explanation to this, these words, is not just greedy, wishful, delusional thinking on our part? Well, the first answer is that the Bible never contradicts itself. Scripture interprets and explains Scripture. God never commands us to hate anything that's good. Ever. Makes no sense. In fact, the fourth commandment tells us to do just the opposite. To honor and respect our parents and superiors. And then he says to husbands, love your wives. So, how do we reconcile the two Here he says hate, there he says love. God also in his word tells us to enjoy and receive with thanksgiving the good things that he gives us. He also says, pay your bills. Eat what you earn. 
work hard with your hands so that you may have and give to others. That, that can't be true. We can't do that if we have to instantly give away all that we have in order to really, truly be his disciples. So just what is he telling us? Just this. That we need to have the right emphasis when we read his words, when we hear them. Because the emphasis when he says, renounce all that you have, is not on the word have. Renounce all that you have. It is renounce all that you have. Here's where we answer the whole question about is pessimism right in our lives? Is this salvation that we've been given, this faith that we've been given, is this ours to lose? Only if we focus on self. Only if we imagine that not only the power to bring us to faith has to be supplied by us, not only the good works that we do pay for, but the ability, the power to keep us in that faith, to preserve us in that faith. When we look to self, that's what Jesus is condemning. That's the life, in quotation marks, that we are to hate. Our former life, as Paul said, where he looked at it after his conversion on the road to Damascus, he looked back to his work righteousness, trying to earn by his own goodness. He looked at all that and he considered it what? Rubbish compared to what Christ did. So every time you and I start to look at what do I need to do to be a real Christian, of course God wants us to despair. Of course that bar is impossibly high. For one thing, we're born losers. We're born with sin. We can't undo the imperfection with which we're born. And then every single day of our lives, we add our own sin to that debt. I'm always astounded at the delusional thinking of man that imagines that he can make up for sin by doing simply what he was supposed to do all along. Surprised my children never tried that with me, with their mother. Okay, we didn't do what you told us to do, but we'll do it tomorrow, so there'll be no punishment here. Mm. But we imagine that somehow with God, or people imagine that with God, okay, no, I didn't do it, no, I didn't do it, no, I didn't do it, but I'll do it, so it's all good. It doesn't even make sense, let alone good theology. And yet that's our default, isn't it? That's what we always slide back into. Even Christians who know better, we start to feel better about ourselves and more comfortable with salvation when we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. Our Savior says it doesn't work that way. In our text, then Jesus lists two examples, building a tower and going to war. Both of these are, are meant to represent discipleship. So is his point here, don't build the tower? You think that's what his message was? Or don't go to war and make peace with what? 
the world, be in the world, not of the world, but no, be in the world and of the world if you can't afford to fight against it. Of course not. What he's telling us is you don't have the wherewithal to fight this battle. You don't have the means to build the tower. You don't have the means to preserve yourself in the faith. So this whole text is meant to make us despair of self. And then it's it, it, it just, where do we go? How do we live? How do we survive? And then our gaze shifts to the cross, to Christ crucified, as it always should. Is this ours to lose? Sure, if we rely on ourselves, we're going to lose. When have you ever been faithful in anything consistently a whole life through? But once you start to despair, once you're filled with pessimism and doubt and fear, then let your gaze shift to Christ in the cross. The accomplished fact of sin debt paid by Jesus. Then hear those words, I remember your sin no more. Those words, who will accuse us on the day of judgment? Not God, he's already declared us not guilty. Not Jesus, he died to pay for our sins. Not the devil, because he had only our sins, and those sins have been paid for, and they're gone, forgiven, forgotten by God. Nothing is left to condemn us. That same God who sent his son, that same Jesus who gave his life, is not going to just abandon you now. That's why God's word calls him the author and finisher of our faith. The, the creator and the perfecter, that perf word perfection means to bring to full completion. That's what drives out this pessimism, this fear, when you take yourself out of that equation and recognize, I can't do this, but my dear Savior, the one who already paid my sin debt, he can. Are there things that we can do to avail ourselves of the Holy Spirit's power? You're doing it right now. Of course there are. You do it every time you make use of God's word in whatever form or whatever venue. That's that power, that power that brought us to faith that also then preserves us in that faith. So drive from your heart first this idea that you must do, that you must, to be a real Christian, must supply more, must do better. And then let your gaze fall on Christ Jesus and all pessimism is erased. Ours to lose? We have that terrible power, of course. But Christ Jesus has already defeated death, sin, and hell for us. He will preserve us. Amen.